Well, hey, it's so wonderful to be with all of you today. My name is Christian Smith. If we haven't met before, I'm our executive director of pastoral ministries here at the Life Christian Church. What a great day to be at church today. Let's give another big round of applause for all of our new members at TLCC. Uh, I'm really excited to be able to spend uh, this day uh, sharing uh, our message with you as we're part of a new series where we're talking about indestructible relationships and what it means to have uh, uh, indestructible, built-up, strong relationships in our lives, particularly in the context for today, for today uh, indestructible relationships within the church community. What Scripture lays out as an ideal, a goal for community for us, and I think this is so important for us, especially, thank you so much for that bottle of water, Chilla, uh, especially in the context of our world today, where we know that there's a lot of uh, at least opportunities for division, for disunity, um, uh, societally, and kind of what's going on. But we've been focusing on what it means to experience a unity given to us by God that we can trust in and to build up and be a part of that community. By the way, Pastor Terry's done a really wonderful job, I think, these last few weeks talking about what it means to be in a relationship. In my opinion, some of the best... Yeah, definitely. In my opinion, some of the best teaching I've heard him uh, give in my entire life, and I've heard him teach a lot of times in my entire life, uh, 28 years worth, just about 99.9% of Sundays, I have been listening to that. So uh, I'm really thankful for his leadership uh, through this time in our world, and I'm happy to be able to, to participate in some of these conversations. I'll note that as an applause for him and not for me, so just to put that one in the ledger for our speaking today. All righty, so we've been looking at the book of Colossians, which is a book written by the Apostle Paul, someone who is following Jesus, and his co-worker Timothy, and they're writing a letter to the church that is in the city of Colossae. And again, this first century, right after Jesus, these followers of Christ are starting to figure out what it means to follow Christ. And uh, they're experiencing some disunity and fragmentation in the church. There's a group of people who are coming into the church, they're kind of infiltrating the church with false teachings that say that we need things other than Jesus, essentially, to have the life that God has dreamed for us. And so the Apostle Paul is coming into the scene, and he's writing a letter trying to guide them, and he's, one, reorienting their thinking to remind them of the fundamental truths of the gospel and simultaneously encouraging them to understand uh, the need for and how to achieve unity within the body of Christ. And so we hop into the scripture here, and I'm going to read for a couple of minutes here uh, Colossians 3, so the third chapter of, of this letter, and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking it. So Paul writes, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. So what he's saying is, hey, you're, you're before Christ, in your old self, you have died to that self. And now you have been raised to new life, which is paralleling it with Jesus' resurrection. Jesus had his, the, the, the birth, 
the incarnation. He lived his life, and then he died, and he was raised into a new and glorious life, a, a, a better body, a, 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 a more glorious future, which is the hope that we have in the future that we experience a glimpse of, a foretaste of now. And so he's saying, hey, you've been raised with Christ. Just like Christ was raised, you've been raised into new life, and you experience some of that right now. Because of your faith and your trust in Jesus, now you have a new life, and in that new life, you don't focus on earthly things, you focus on the things above, the things in heaven. Now, earthly thing, just as a side point, is uh, an earthly thing is not, does not mean a physical thing. It does not mean physical objects. And the, the heavenly things don't mean only like things that are aspiritual or out somewhere in the orb where all of the best Tempur-Pedic uh, clouds and beds exist that will float on forever and the most beautiful harps. What an earthly thing is, is, is it's, it's communicating a, a, a kind of a, a finite, temporal, imperfect reality that we can often put our hope in. You know, like physical things or, you know, like money or whatever. It's like, it's like we, we don't want to focus on those things. We want to put our mind on heavenly things, which are the things of God. We're going to see what some of these things are as we continue reading. So he's saying, you have new life. Now your mind needs to focus on the new life kinds of things. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, this temporal thing. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So there's this new life focus and new ethic. There's these things of our earthly nature that we put to death when we're buried with Christ. And then we raise to a new life into these heavenly things, the things above that God is cultivating in us that creates a unity between different people, not lying, slander, malice, rage, all that kind of stuff. And when we do that, then we are one community of people. There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, etc. So we can achieve this oneness this unity together as a people who are marked by Christ and not by these other kind of identifying factors like where you're from or, or, or where you work or all that kind of stuff. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love, the self-sacrifice of Jesus is the embodiment of love. When we sacrifice for others, then we bind all of these different uh, ethics and values together. Um, and then he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, what we've been doing today, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right. So, what do we see when we read this, this passage? First of all, we see a, a, a lot. We could, 
we have been spending many, many weeks digging through all of this. But I want to highlight one thing that I think we find, especially in the, in, in the middle of this, patch, in this passage, which is a lot of what appear to be commands to you. Commands to you. It's do not do this. Do not do this. Put this away. Put this away. And it's the you, 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 you kind of thing. There's a lot of stuff that we have to do. Changes you have to make to yourself. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You used to walk in these ways. Take off your old self. You must get rid of these things. Rid yourself of these things. And on and on and on, all the things that you have to do. But what I want to do is I want to encourage us today to read this in a nuanced but very different kind of way. I want you to hear the word you in a different way. See, we know we have a lot of different kinds of translations of Scripture. Maybe you know that, maybe you don't know that. But we have like the NIV and the King James Version and the New King's J- New Version and the TNIV and the this and the CEB and the ESV and the NESV and the, I don't know, you can keep going on, NBA, the NFL, the MLB and the, uh, all your different versions of it. So the Bible's written in, in, in primarily two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, and then a little bit in Aramaic. And then we translate it so we get our version of it today. But we always have to be careful because sometimes we can miss the original language and what it was trying to do. Well, I love this. There's this Texan uh, theologian. Do we have any Texans in here today? Former Texans? We have one Texan. Does, can I make fun of Texans if there's only one Texan in here today? Is that allowed? I love what this Texan theologian said. And he, he, he said he wishes that there was a, a, a Texas translation of Scripture, I guess the, the TTS, where every single time that you hear the word you in Scripture, you would hear the word y'all. This would be a very interesting and potentially unsophisticated reading of Scripture. However, we would read it much differently. It would be put to death whatever belongs to y'all's earthly nature. Y'all used to work in these ways. Take off Y'all's old self. What's it's like a super plural, like y'all's's? Y'all's's? Take off all y'all's's? I got like four texts of someone trying to tell me what, how you're supposed to actually say it, and everyone said that there are different ones after the first service. So I'm still very confused. But what we see is that there is a necessary, necessary plural nature whenever you hear the word you in Scripture. And this is because Scripture is always talking to communities of people. Scripture is a text to a community. It's not just a text to an individual or to individuals. See, there's something about our relationship with God that is fundamentally communal in nature rather than just personal. I don't know if that sounds new or obvious to you or or whatnot, but I know that in the church today, it sometimes can be a very hard concept to grasp for very understandable reasons, and that's because we live in a largely individualistic sort of world. Self-oriented, uh, for instance, there's a very interesting stat popped out to me the other day that I heard, which is that self-help books, like the self-help book industry, has doubled in size in the last seven years. It's a pretty shocking kind of number. That shows where a lot of the emphasis is, is, is being put uh, you know, in people as they're going to a store trying to get something that's going to benefit them. The self-help book industry has doubled in size in the last seven years. Now, that's not a bad thing. I love self-help books. They're awesome. But it shows some of the direction of our society where it's kind of like a, hey, whatever's good for you is good for you kind of thing. You have to find your own path. You have to find yourself. You have to self-express. Right? We've all heard this kind of language. Um, And again, not all of it is bad, but 
I think it, 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 can, it can misshape our reading of Scripture. Here's, here's an example of, of how this can play out in society. There's a sociologist named Robert Bella, and he, he wrote a book uh, doing sociological studies on individuals and kind of the path of religion and spirituality within America. And he writes of this woman named Sheila Larson. Uh, and it, the, the book reads, Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy and describes her faith as Sheilaism. I think Sheila needs a little bit more therapy for her Sheilaism. I believe in God, Sheila says. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond belief in God, though not many. In defining what she calls my own Sheilaism, she said, it's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess, take care of each other. I think God would want us to take care of each other. God is still a viable option, though in this telling, Robert Bella says, a God who does not comply with my feelings remains largely irrelevant, if not implausible. The result is what Robert Bella labels expressive individualism, expressive individualism. The belief that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. And this individuality is to be lived out by refusing to surrender to conformity with a model imposed from outside. So we as individuals never conform to anything outside of us or else we're surrendering our own person, our own nature, our own identity. Each person is to throw off the shackles of expectations imposed by anything on the outside and look within to be true to themselves. It's a little bit of an extreme example of her own Sheilaism, but I have to say a lot of us are living our own, whatever your first name, isms are. Luckily, my name is Christian, so I'm good, you know. <laughs> I'm living Christianism. Uh, perfect, huh? We can all go get name changes. Um, the reality is this kind of individualism, for all of us, I could be a, as much of a culprit as anyone, do operate on this fundamental premise of self-fulfillment, finding myself so that I can then maximize who I am. And if anything tries to impede on that, that thing's bad and oppressing me in some, in some sort of way. Now, of course, there are things that can do that, so I, I, I want to be nuanced there. But this is our, our, our oftentimes our guiding uh, principle and lens for life is how do I express who I am? Scripture, however, I really believe has a little bit of a, a different approach. And if we a, a, approach Scripture with a self-oriented lens, then we miss Scripture. But if we approach Scripture with possibly a communal lens, then we can understand more of what it's trying to do. Uh, a really fabulous theologian named uh, Richard B. Hayes wrote a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. And he's talking about how we can look at the New Testament and, and the vision that it has for our moral development and how we're supposed to live and act. But he, he, he prefaces this conversation by saying that there are three lenses that we need to look at Scripture through in order to truly understand Scripture. I think these, these three things are really valuable for each of us practically. Like if you're reading Scripture this week, put these lenses on and see how, oh my gosh, if I read it as it's all kind of talking about these three things, then this will make more sense. Remember, just to preface this, we often look at it at, with like American Christianity or uh, American spirituality even. We look at anything we read, anything we do with an expressive individualism. How does it make me express myself more? But scripture doesn't approach it like that. The three lenses for, to read scripture through, I believe, and what Richard B. Hayes says is, 
First of all, the cross. Second of all, new creation. And third of all, community. Cross, new creation, community. Now, I think that the first two of these make intuitive sense, right? Cross, that makes sense. Jesus died on the cross. That's pretty central. It's kind of almost in the middle of the Bible. If, you know, you look at all the pages, it's close, a little bit more towards the end. So it makes sense. It's kind of central to what's going on. And then you have new creation. Maybe the term isn't familiar with you, but the concept of God redeeming and making all things right, that makes sense as a lens through which we should look through Scripture. Those are really important. The third one, I think, does kind of surprise us. When it's community is a central lens to look at Scripture through. See, oftentimes I think when we, when we think of the gospel or what Scripture is trying to tell us, we say phrases like this, Jesus came to die for my sins. Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. Jesus wants a personal relationship with me. That's what Christianity is about. I've said those things many times, but I think it's really important to note that those are half-truth statements. Those are half-truths. They are true. Those are not false in any sense of the word, but they don't represent the bigger picture. And we reduce the bigger picture of the gospel and scripture when we only make it about our own salvation in our own lives. Ever since the beginning, God has been working to save and form not just individuals, but not less than individuals, not just individuals, but a community of people who would partner with him as a community of people that he could lead into the future to make the world right with him. You see, Abraham, for instance, the, the, the guy who God picked early on, an individual who God picked early on to, to, to lead uh, the plan of God into the future, he was an individual called, but what was he called to do? To have a family, to form a group of people, to form the nation of Israel, the people of Israel who would move forward. And guess what? We are children of Abraham, as we see in in Galatians. We are from that same seed, the same inheritance that Abraham was promised of a family of people who would bless the world and be blessed by God. We are part of that original family. The first promise wasn't, Abraham, you're going to get saved, be happy. It was, Abraham, you're going to form a community of people who is going to be a part of making the world right. The full truth of the gospel is not that he came to save me, as much as I would kind of like that to be true. The full truth of the gospel is that he came to save us so that we, so that we could move into the future together with people and with God so that we could accomplish the plan of redemption in the world. God is using a new community of people to partner with him in his plan. Therefore, our individual identities, when we're looking at our life and who and what we are, it's not caught up in our own success or even just caught up in our own families, let's say our nuclear biological family. Oftentimes, I think the two major things, just kind of off the cuff, uh, it's either our identity and what we care most about, what we look through, like our decision-making lens of the world, is about what does this mean for me? Or sometimes a a more selfless way, I think this is even better, is what, what, what about my family? But what God is doing is your identity is not in yourself or your family, your identity is in the family of God. 
that your identity is as a child of God. And guess what? None of us are, are, are single childs. None of us are single children. All right, we all have siblings. We all have brothers and sisters who are part of the family. So when our identity is as a child of God, the inherent kind of parenthetical statement that follows after that is therefore you are siblings with a whole bunch of other people spanning the globe and spanning all of time who God is moving forward in this plan. Our fundamental identity is as children of God. We are children with each other. Of God. And so our self development, right, the whole personal development, self help kind of world, is not an end in itself. So when I am living my life and I'm making decisions as to what to do daily, and I'm thinking, who am I? God, what are you calling me to do? I'm not just asking about what this does for me. And if I'm successful there, then all of a sudden I'm going, wow, I'm so happy I have been fulfilled because my personal self development is not the end. That's not the goal. My goal is for the, is the development of us together as a community. See, Christianity is inherently a team sport. You know, it's like, uh, you know, sometimes you have, I don't know who follows sports here, but you can have like, a, you know, a, a team is always losing games, but they have the one great player on it. And that great player is always really, you know, happy. I played quarterback in high school and through, and a little bit in college. Some of you might be surprised by that. Um, uh, actually, uh, we have a, something called Club Six at, at church, and it's like a class for sixth graders that we teach, and I was like teaching like philosophy and theology and stuff to these sixth graders, but we started off the, the class by doing two truths and a lie. Um, and so we, me and the other teacher, we'd put up three things about us. They had to pick out which one they thought was false just to kind of, and my, mine were like, uh, I played college football. I, um, I love swimming in the ocean. By the way, that's the false one, like really, really false. I hate the ocean. Probably heard me say that before. And like, I love Taco Bell or something. That one's very, very true to a sad extent. I love Taco Bell. And so the kids are going and like five kids say that the lie is that I played college football. Um, and I was like, whatever, I, I don't expect kids to assume that. And then I was like, no, the lie is that I played college football. And this one kid in the back goes, what? But you don't have any muscles. Tom Brady doesn't have any muscles. What? All right, I don't know. What was I talking about? Christianity is a team sport. If I was playing quarterback and I threw five touchdowns and for 500 yards and got a front-page article in the, you know, the state newspaper, but my team lost, what was the point? Oftentimes, we can be on our own paths. I can be on my own path doing my own thing, and I'm getting accolades and this and that, and I accomplished this and made my company this much money, and my kid's doing this incredible thing, and I'm... But if you look around you and your, real, your, your, your family and God, the family that God has put you in to, to help to bring the fulfillment of the eternal, grand, cosmic plan for the world, if that group of people is failing then are you succeeding? We have to ask that question first, I believe, when we're going about our lives and looking at what it means for us to fulfill ourselves and our own expressions of individualism that God has given us. Each of us have our own individual personalities and realities, right? And, and, and God has an individual plan for us. None of that gets taken away. But think about our mission statement at TLCC. Our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them. What's the dream that God has for you? as we spread his love in ever-widening circles. 
very concerted effort right there. We debated for hours, literally, of how to do that, hours upon hours. There's both the individual and the communal component. So each of us are looking at what does God have for me as a part of what we are doing. Oftentimes, you know, marketers, uh, how, they, how they start their marketing plans is they ask the, the, the acronym question with them. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? So you're always asking the question when you're marketing, what's in it for that person? When they say, well, why am I going to do this? What's in it for me? Well, I think that as Christians, we cannot go about our lives asking the question always, like the world is asking of, what's in it for me? Which we do often. Am I going to be friends with this person? What's in it for me? Am I going to go to this party? What's in it for me? Am I going to serve here? What's in it for me? Am I going to buy this pair of jeans? What's in it for me? Am I going to read this book today? What's in it for me? Am I going to pray, pray this morning? What's in it for me? I think the first question we almost always have to be asking is, what's in it for us? So when you're making a decision at home tomorrow, you're saying, what's my identity? What am I a part of? How am I reading kind of the the, the story of my life of constantly going, what's in it for us? How am I contributing to the fundamental identity of who I am as a child of God participating in the family of God? We always have to have a communal lens by which we look at the world. Richard B. Hayes, again, who said cross, new creation, and community, thinks that the proper order for those is a logical procession of order of those, of lenses, is community cross the new creation. Because we look at Scripture often individualistically, then we miss the point of what God is calling us to communally. So we have to start with saying, what is God saying to all of us moving forward into the future? Everyone tracking? We good? We all right? Okay. So let's keep going. We're going to continue reading the scripture over this next few minutes here. And hopefully pull out some more important points with that kind of big preface. So Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you, again, read these with y'all. I just can't do that. I feel really awkward doing that the whole time. So y'all, 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 get it in our minds. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have, been taken, off, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Yes, this sounds like a very fun list of things to have to do. Get rid of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, the wrath of God is coming. Yay, great Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Anger, rage, malice. It's like, oh my gosh, here's all the things that, we, that I have to do. Now I'm starting to understand it's something that we have to do. But I think when we start to read this with this communal lens, we begin to, to, to reshape how we look at these, what appear to be personal, individual kinds of sins and moral actions in our lives, okay? So, first of all, in the second half of here, we see what, what are called sins of disunity. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, do not lie to each other. We understand how these are communally focused, right? These things are related to other people and therefore can break up the community. Sins of disunity makes sense so that's communal. But the first half, I think it's more difficult to put into the communal kind of lens. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. These are called sins of desire. Sins of desire. 
And these feel like individual sins and individual actions that we have to take in order. Often, I think, I'm going to talk about this in two ways, but the first way I think we look at this is often how I have to do these things in order to be saved. Whenever we look at often an individual command that's towards something that we have to do or change, we go, oh my goodness, I'm being greedy. Therefore, am I not going to be saved? Am I not going to get into heaven? Important, a lot of important conversations to have around that point. But we must realize that most of Scripture is actually not addressing the question of how we can be saved in some kind of mechanistic sense. Here what we see is that we're already accepted into the family of God based upon our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And what most of Scripture is doing is, is that it's assuming that if you're in a covenant relationship that you want to grow as a community of people to be the people who God is bringing into the future. So, one, we think, oh, here's a list of things I have to do to get saved. That's not what God's talking about. We just have to look at it from a different angle. He's going, how are you being built up into the new person that God has for you with a community of other people? Something else I think that we think is that we have this idea of private sin in our mind. Like, here's the, here, there are things that we do that are in the privacy of our home, or no one might know about, or I'm in my car, and there's one other person in their car, and no one's going to know what I show to that person who's in the other car after they cut me off. And there's a private sin that no one's going to know about. Hopefully that person doesn't pull into the church parking lot with me after I show them that private sin. And so we don't want to impose our standards on the privacy of other people's lives. You know, that, that's their life. That doesn't hurt them. The, the sad reality is, ultimately the good reality and encouraging reality, is that there's, we have very little private life when we're connected to the body of Christ always. 1 Corinthians 6 says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that, the, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? And then Paul continues to talk about how each of us have the spirit of God that is connecting each of us and, and bringing, stitching each of us together into the one body of Christ. See, we are the body of Christ in the world. Where Christ is ascended and is not here physically, we have his spirit, so we become the hands and the feet of God in this world, the physical manifestation of Christ in this world. And I don't just mean this in a poetic, this sounds nice, theoretical, construct kind of way. Like if we believe in the reality of, of, of spiritual things that can happen, and that there is a real spirit of God, and that we have that spirit of God, then we believe that we really are connected in some kind of way each and every one of us. But guess what? When we leave the church after service today, or when you leave your life group on a Wednesday night and you guys are talking about Jesus, or when you leave the serving team that you're on, whatever it might be, you don't stop being a part of the body of Christ. We're always a part of the body of Christ. At home, by ourselves, we're part of the body of Christ. When we're interacting with our families, we're a part of the body of Christ. When you're making a decision at any point of your life, you are a part of the body of Christ at that moment. So what we do matters in every moment. Guess what? We're going to make mistakes. We're going to you know, do all kinds of things that, that, that we shouldn't do in our brokenness as we're trying and striving to be better. But there's no particular thing such as private sin, I do not believe. 
Because everything private about our lives in some way lurks into the public corporate life that we live with the body of Christ. And so all of us, now we can look at this in the negative, scary way, which is, which is easy, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I can't do all of these things now. But think about how incredible this is. Think about how incredible this is. That when you're doing something, you are always contributing and adding to something that is way bigger than yourself. No matter what it is. That your success, you never have private success. Whether someone knows it or not, you're contributing to what God is doing. That someone else's success right next to you is your success as well. None of us have private victories. Our victories are all public with the body of Christ. All of us are building up into something together. And when you're struggling and maybe failing or just having a bad go at it, and it's, it's a difficult, dry season in your life, and you're the member of the body that you know, got hit right in the nerve and you have a dead arm, and you're hanging around, but guess what? Someone else is thriving in the body of Christ right there, and they're, they're pushing and they're doing really well. That arm comes over and can pick up the dead arm and keep it going. It can support us. We're never separated. We're never separated. And so when we're trying to do things like not have, you know, immoral kinds of lust and sexuality and rage and malice and all these different kinds of things, it's because we together, just to put it simply, it's not about you. Your idolatry, your greed, all that kind of stuff. Guess what? You're in the family of God and it's not about you. It's about all of us. And it's not about me. And it's not about, it's about none of us. It's about all of us together. We can never separate out in our minds to become fully individualized when inherently we are connected with one another by the Spirit of God. Again, I want to nuance that we all are unique people. We all need to find how God made us and what he's calling us to. But again, within the lens, the context of the body of Christ and the community. Our personal development is the community's development. I think one of the difficult things about this is that it, it, it come, when you begin to rely on other people and put your goals and hopes and your future in the hands of other people, inherently what comes along with that is a vulnerability. I know for my personality, uh, kind of type A driven, and I know friends who I have are, are kind of the same sort of personality. Um, it's like they don't want to receive money from anyone. They don't want to get anyone's help. They don't want to get like networking help because they want it to be them who got the thing done. I had a friend when I was in college, and we're all trying to figure out what we're going to go do. And his dad was a pastor as well. My dad's a pastor. If you don't know, my dad's Pastor Terry. Um, and we're trying to figure out what we're all going to go do with our lives. And my friend was like... Um, and I don't fault him for this, but, but my friend was like, you know, I don't want to go back and work at my dad's church because I need to make my own way, my own path. Now, maybe that's what God was calling him to do, but, but my approach was like, hey, I can go stand on someone else's shoulders. That sounds pretty great to me, right? But there's something worrying about that, of relying on someone else in your process to self-discovery and, you know, individual expressivism, right? It's like, well, what if someone else messes up? What does that do to me? What if, what if I mess up and I mess everyone else up? We, there, there's, there's, there becomes this, this natural kind of potential tension in our relationships and the goals and our future that we're looking towards. But I think that there's something really great here we see again in scripture. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here's what I want to focus on. Bear with each other. Bear with each other. And forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. See, uh, uh, Paul does not act like, God speaking through Paul does not act like the, 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 the communal lens that we live through is going to be easy in any sense. You're going to have to bear with one another. You're going to have to forgive one another. You're going to have to love, which does not mean feeling good to people. Love is shorthand for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You're going to have to self-sacrifice for people. Guess what? People are going to make mistakes and they might hurt you as you're all relying on one another. But we must be able to, to, to bear with the difficulty of what it means to move forward in community. And the reason why we can do this, why we are able to bear with one and forgive one another is because Christ first forgave us. A better translation, I think, of, of, of forgive even is, is to have gracious. We are gracious to others because Christ was first gracious to us. And then also in the original Greek, there are nuances to this where graciousness is similar to a gift. We were given something. We give to others because we were first given to. In the first century, a gift, and we don't have time to get into this, but a gift wasn't just given indiscriminately. A gift was given with the expectation that the recipient of the gift would be able to give the gift out even more. That was first century gift giving, um, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the norm for them. So when Jesus is looking at you and he's going, guess what? I'm having to bear with you all because you all kind of rebelled against me and like kicked me out of the garden and they're still trying to kick me out. But guess what? Even in your rebellion, I am going to give you a gift. I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to forgive you despite the fact that you don't deserve it. And once I give you that gift, then I am expecting you because you understand the eternal, unbelievable forgiveness that I have given to you, that out of an overwhelming thankfulness of the gift that you've been given, that you'll be just as gracious to the other people who are my children as well. God's going, I've given the gift to each other, to, to all of you guys, and I expect you to transfer that gift between one another. You see, we can deal with the the, the, the vulnerability of being a community moving towards a goal because we've already been given forgiveness from Jesus. And we can deal with the brokenness of what other people are gonna do because how can we not forgive if we've been so forgiven? So today I hope that all of us are encouraged practically in our lives to, when you're at home this week or you're doing whatever you're doing this week, to constantly ask the question, what's in it for us? When I do this thing, how is this building the community that God has set up for us? And then how am I persisting through the difficulties that community might present to us? Because of the sins that God bore for me, I can bear for others as well. Thank you guys. 